Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. Welcome back to CNCR. We get to learn for the very first time from colleagues at the University of Chicago at North Shore. Allow us to welcome and introduce Drs. Eva Minga, Juan Salazar, and Kevin Lee. Guys, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Please introduce yourselves. Hi, my name is Eva Minga. I'm a second year cardiology fellow at the University of Chicago, North Shore. I have an interest in cardio-oncology, infiltrative cardiomyopathies, and cardiac imaging. And I'm going to pursue one more year of training in cardiac imaging at University of Chicago. And I'm really excited to be here today and thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much for the opportunity. My name is Juan Pablo Salazar, also known as JP. I was born and raised in Ecuador. I did my medical school in Ecuador. I finished my internal medicine training at the University of Chicago North Shore program. I did an extra year of a chief resident, and I'm currently doing my cardiology fellowship at the same institution. My future goals, I'm passionate about education and also pursuing a career in interventional cardiology. Hello, everyone. My name is Kevin Lee, longtime listener, first time being here on the podcast. So very excited. Similar to JP, I'm also a first year fellow here at North Shore. Long term, I have an interest in cardiac imaging. And so hopefully this case will get fellow imagers and every other cardiologist out there excited. Eva, JP, and Kevin, welcome to the show. This is such a special treat for us for two reasons. One, between the four of us, we really represent a very diverse international backgrounds. And secondly, as Cardi Nerds for the Case Report series, we've had the pleasure of joining and traveling to Chicago on numerous occasions, but this is the very first time we get to hang out with our friends over at North Shore. So the floor is yours. Tell us where are we going to hang out to dive into this beautiful case discussion? I would say if you're up in Evanston, where most of our training occurs, the best place would probably be the High Temple, which we can actually see from the Evanston Hospital itself. So I would say that would probably be a good place to start. So the Baha'i Temple welcomes all religions, welcomes everybody. And I believe there are only seven in the world in each continent. And JP and Kevin can correct me if I'm mistaken in this information. And the one here in North America, it's in Evanston. That's beautiful. What a wonderful place to hang out. Sounds very serene, although it'll be contrasted with the backdrop of a very tumultuous case presentation. Let's dive in. Who do we get to take care of today? We're very excited to present a very interesting case about a 77-year-old gentleman with the chief complaint of shortness of breath. This patient had no significant past medical history and presented to our emergency department with one week history of shortness of breath. It's been progressive, getting worse over time, had no specific trigger. It presents mostly at rest, exacerbated by minimal exertion does not alleviate the problems with any positions, denies any association with chest pain, palpitations, numbness, tingling, recent travels, fever, chills, cough, wheezing. The review of systems is pertinent for recent 15-pound weight loss and poor oral intake over the last one month or so. He has been dealing with some constipation intermittently as well, associated with diffuse dull intermittent abdominal pain, mostly in the left side, and some hip pains intermittently. His past medical history is pertinent for osteoarthritis. He takes acetaminophen 500 milligrams three times as needed. 
He has no allergies, he has no significant past medical history otherwise, and no family history of cardiac conditions. And in terms of his social history, he's from the Philippines, he's never a smoker, no IV drug user, and he presents to the emergency department with these complaints. As far as the differential diagnosis and the physical exam and additional workup that we had in mind, we have a broad differential diagnosis at the moment before even looking at the patient. Yeah, JP, thank you for outlining this history here. You know, whenever I hear the words weight loss, especially unintentional weight loss, that is always a red flag. And I agree, the differential diagnosis for rehab, it sounds like subacute onset, progressive shortness of breath, and a month of unintentional weight loss. It's something very concerning going on here. In my mind, when I hear weight loss, there are a few different buckets to consider. One is food, nutrition, calories aren't getting inside the mouth. And so there we can think about issues with related to access to food, social determinants of health, and maybe just like motivation and drive and psychological health. Two is food gets into the mouth, but it has a trouble passing through the GI tract. So we can think about motility and obstructive type pathologies that might involve really any portion of the gastrointestinal tract. Three would be an issue with the gut lining interface that associated with malabsorption syndromes like celiac disease, SIBO, etc. So is there some pathology that's causing malabsorption? And fourth is food's getting into the mouth, it's passing through fine, it's getting broken down and getting absorbed, but the calories in are not enough for calories out. And what I mean by that is the calories are being burned at a rapid rate, burned and used. And there we can think about hypermetabolic, endocrinologic, and cell turnover type of states. But really, at any of these parts, the differential diagnosis is a red flag because when we just don't have enough nutrition to sustain us, whatever the cause is, it's not good. So is there any way to elucidate that a little bit more in terms of clarifying why there may be weight loss? Is he getting access to food? Is there a psychological issue where there's no motivation to eat? Is there review systems like diarrhea, things that would indicate malabsorption or anything like that? Or do you think that he's eating enough food and we're just having hypermetabolic type of state? Yeah, so that's exactly what we were thinking. And as far as this patient, he didn't have any problems accessing food. He was having good oral intake, though the appetite was not there for him. He really didn't show any signs of diarrhea or poor absorption of nutrients. And really, it was just unexplained for him at the moment. Okay, so I guess at this point, we're probably thinking about something that is a subacute onset type of pathology and causes excess calorie consumption, whether it's endocrinologic hypermetabolic syndrome or a chronic inflammatory disease like infection, autoimmune, or neoplasia. But regardless of what it is, in any of these categories, this is a patient to take very seriously. This is a patient to triage for either expedited outpatient care, depending on the vital signs, maybe expedited inpatient care. Where did you guys go from here? Yeah, that's exactly right. So from here, we, of course, examined the patient. The vitals and physical exam on presentation to our emergency department was remarkable for blood pressure, 126 over 84. Pulse was fluctuating in the 90s to 100s range, but mostly 90s beats per minute. The temperature was normal, 98.2, and the respiratory rate was very remarkable at 28 breaths per minute. Physical exam was very remarkable for a JVP of approximately 11 centimeters above the clavicle at 45 degree angle. He did have hepatojugular reflux and also he did have a little bit of engorged neck veins that didn't go away or collapse with deep inspiration, so borderline Kuzmol sign. His cardiac exam was regular rhythm and tachycardic, no murmurs at the moment and no gallops that we could appreciate on exam. Respiratory examination 
He was in no acute distress despite breathing fast at the moment, no accessory muscle use. However, he did have decreased breath sounds in the bases of the lungs, left, greater than right. In his extremities, he did have one plus pitting edema bilaterally. You know, JP, we were concerned about this patient based on his presenting symptoms, the tempo, and the differential diagnosis, but our concern is only raised by the vital signs and the physical exam. At this point, how worried was the team? And based on this, where were you planning on triaging this patient? So given the fact that the patient had weight loss and he was breathing pretty fast and having these physical findings, it was pretty concerning to us. And the patient definitely needed an acute intervention in terms of addressing his needs and and the inpatient side. So definitely we took this very seriously and we addressed this in a more urgent manner. Perfect. So at this point, you have somebody coming in with progressive shortness of breath, unintentional weight loss, and a physical exam going for fluid overload and is generally a heart failure type of presentation with a small sign, which of course is associated with right-sided myocardial failure, right-sided valvular disease, and or pericardial disease. So let's pump the accelerator and get through some data so we can properly take care of this patient. What did you guys get next? That's right. So what we ended up doing is first we obtained basic labs and his CVC was remarkable for mild anemia. His hemoglobin was 11.7. His chemistries were remarkable for a sodium of 120 and also his high sensitivity troponin level was slightly elevated at 17, being the cutoff at 14. His anti-proBNP was elevated at 2,124. And at this moment, we're thinking the hyponatremia is probably due to the hypervolemia that the patient's having, and which is corroborated by the elevated pro-BNP and physical findings, of course. And just a quick question, there's mild anemia, 11.7, and just thinking about this weight loss, and we're wondering about malabsorption symptoms and maybe even cancer and inflammatory states. Did you have an MCV for the anemia? Yes, the MCV was normal. Okay, so we're not thinking about chronic gut bleeding from like a GI cancer, and we're also not thinking iron deficiency related to celiac disease or something like that potentially, or a pernicious anemia, gastritis with B12 deficiency. So we're getting some great data here from our basic labs, but we clearly need more information and let's get to it. So we then proceeded to obtain an EKG, which showed sinus tachycardia with low voltage. What we could also appreciate were some Q waves in the inferior leads and also some PACs, potentially raising the question of a prior infarction, especially in the inferior wall for this patient, maybe silent in the past. We then obtained a chest X-ray, which showed a very enlarged and globular cardiac silhouette and also some pleural fusions, left, right, and right. So for this time being, I want to invite my co-fellow, Kevin, to discuss a little bit about the differential diagnosis. Thank you, JP, for that amazing presentation. So overall, we have the 77-year-old gentleman who's coming in with weight loss, shortness of breath, and coming in with a heart failure presentation. So he's got an elevated pro-BNP, he's got fluid in the lungs, he's got elevated JVP, so he has left and right-sided heart failure symptoms, and he also has hyponatremia, which all fits with this heart failure syndrome. The first thing that we needed to figure out was what was the cause of his heart failure. Ischemic cardiomyopathy was something that is always high on the differential for heart failure. We have Q waves that are seen on the EKG. We have a mildly elevated troponin. So certainly one thing to think about would be ischemic cardiomyopathy. 
The second thing was with the low voltages, the elevated JVP and possible Kuzmal sign, as well as this globular-shaped heart on the chest X-ray. Another diagnostic consideration was a pericardial effusion that was causing his heart failure symptoms. Yeah, Kevin, that was really beautifully dissected. You took essentially all of the data, the, the trash trove of data that JP presented, and identified that this patient is coming in with a subacute onset of a clinical heart failure syndrome. And you're thinking, what are the most likely causes here? And you identify that maybe this is an ischemic cardiomyopathy or other cardiomyopathy. You're also concerned about pericardial disease. As we get more data, we'll think about the other causes of heart failure, like electrical failure, valvular failure, as well as other causes of coronary and myocardial failure. But I wholeheartedly agree with you and am excited for what data lies ahead. What did you think was necessary in addition to treating him? What was necessary to parse this out moving forward? I think the first thing was given this patient's presentation, there was concern for some kind of heart or lung pathology. And so a chest CT was performed to really figure out to see if there was anything going on in the chest that could acutely identify why he was coming in with this heart failure syndrome. Yeah, and if there's cancers on the differential diagnosis or some other chronic inflammatory syndrome like infection and whatnot causing shortness of breath, then with a heart failure presentation, certainly cross-sectional imaging is very appropriate. What did we find? Yeah, absolutely. So a CT that was done was a PE protocol. So with contrast, it did not show any evidence of PE for the gentleman, but it did show that there was a large, simple appearing pericardial effusion that measured up to two and a half centimeters in thickness, as well as prominence of the anterior right ventricular wall. It did also note atherosclerotic disease in the coronary arteries and aorta, but did not comment more as it was not a gated CT study. So given the CT scan, the large pericardial effusion was concerning to everyone involved. So a stat echocardiogram was ordered as the next step to further evaluate this pericardial effusion. So an echocardiogram was performed emergently in the emergency room, actually, and it showed a large circumferential pericardial effusion more on the anterior side than the posterior side, as well as an echo density that was attached to the RV free wall. On the echocardiogram, there were some signs of early cardiac tamponade that were seen, including some collapse of the right atrium, as well as a large plethoric IVC. Wow, Kevin, these images are not at all subtle. And for everyone listening, when you are free, go ahead and check out these echo images on the website for this episode. But there certainly is a large circumferential pericardial effusion. And you know, as an early learner, I used to think of tamponade as very binary. You have it or you don't have it. But in practice, oftentimes it's more subtle than that and really related to the time over which the fluid accumulates. You can have a large effusion without tamponade physiology. You can have a relatively small effusion with a clear tamponade. And as an interventionist, you can see that, of course, when it rapidly accumulates from a coronary perf, for instance. So in this patient, there is a large effusion and the signs of chamber collapse and a plethoric IVC are very concerning. Kevin, did you determine this to be tamponade by echo? And maybe we can talk about some of the features that we can use to adjudicate that. Of course, if you don't have, for whatever reason, an ultrasound probe available, you can also just do a bedside pulses paradoxes and determine if there's a 10 millimeters of mercury drop in the systolic pressure with inspiration. But what do we look for on ECHO to make that determination and decide what the immediate next step should be? That's an excellent question. So there are pretty much four findings on ECHO that we look for when we see a pericardial effusion. The sign that has the highest specificity for tamponade is diastolic RV collapse. So if we see any signs of diastolic RV collapse, that is almost certain tamponade. 
The earliest sign of tamponade that we can see on echocardiogram is actually a systolic RA collapse. Since the pressures in the RA are so low, if we do not have even systolic RA collapse, that has very high sensitivity. Another sign with high sensitivity is a plethoric IVC with minimal respiratory variation. So if you have a normal IVC with normal respiratory variation, you can be pretty certain that you most likely do not have tamponade on your hands. And then the last thing, and you perfectly mentioned pulsus paradoxus, but if you do not have a manual blood pressure cuff available or are not very confident in your pulsus paradoxus and you have an echo probe on their chest, you can look for respiratory cycle changes through the mitral and tricuspid valve inflow velocities. And that is the echo surrogate for pulsus paradoxus. And one thing that you mentioned that's very important to note is that the size of the pericardial fusion is not related to whether or not the patient has or does not have cardiac tamponade. As you mentioned, someone that has a PERF could have a very small pericardial effusion, but because the pericardium does not have time to stretch, tamponade can happen very rapidly. Whereas in more chronic conditions of increasing pericardial effusions, you could actually have a very large pericardial effusion without tamponade. It just depends on the rate at which the pericardial effusion is growing. We also have images of the mitral and tricuspid inflow velocities And these show that on inspiration, the mitral inflow velocities decrease by more than 30%. And with inspiration, the tricuspid inflow velocities increase by more than 50 to 60%. We also have a plethoric IVC, which measure three centimeters on expiration and still measuring two centimeters on inspiration. So many signs that are pointing to possible tamponade here on the echo. Okay, so our patient has a large circumferential pericardial effusion with multiple signs indicating that he is in pericardial tamponade. So I guess uh, admit for overnight OBS and see him tomorrow? What did we do? Yeah, so that was not the thought we were thinking at the moment. We really wanted to address this issue right away with an emergent pericardiocentesis, given the fact that this was an emergency at the moment. So the patient actually underwent a successful pericardiocentesis and was done emergently at the moment. Beautiful. So there are two things here. One is keeping him alive. Of course, pericardial tamponade is a life-threatening emergency. The second issue now that we've done a successful pericardiocentesis and relieved the pressure compressing the glove around the heart, we also have to kind of address what's going on and why did he develop this? What's the underlying ideology? We're seeing that there's something there in the RV at this point. Our suspicion is high for some form of a malignancy. If you look at the pericardial effusion tab, it was bloody. So definitely the concern, it's even higher. And as you said, it's not only a therapeutic procedure for this patient, given the concerning findings for tamponade, but it also can be very diagnostic to give us a little more insight on what's going on. So we were absolutely concerned about malignancy at this time, and we pursued further workup. As you mentioned, we wanted to get a little bit more detail on that RV mass or RV echo density that we appreciated by the echocardiogram. And of course, the best way to do that is a cardiac MRI. So we have included CINE images of the patient's cardiac MRI. And to summarize, the cardiac MRI gave us very beautiful images and it showed that there was a large mass encasciating the RV free wall and was also extending in the RA as well. Interesting and concerning, very concerning, the mass was also encasciating the RC 
RCA, which if you remember going back to our EKG findings that were discussed very nicely by JP, there were some Q waves in those inferior leads and there were some changes in those inferior leads that were concerning in that initial EKG. The mass, if we look at our T1 and T2 weighted images, the mass was iso-intense in both T1 and T2 images. Cardiac masses in cardiac MRI can be very specific in giving you almost a very accurate and early diagnosis while you're waiting for those pathology results, just by the location of the mass, just by how the mass behaves in the different imaging sequences. And our reader who read the cardiac MRI, he gave the accurate diagnosis just by looking at the images and it was later confirmed by the pathology images. Our perfusion and late gadolinium enhancement images showed that the mass had minimal late gadolinium uptake. So to summarize the cardiac MRI findings, we have a large mass that's extending into the RA and the RV wall. It's encasciating the right coronary artery. It has iso-intense in T1 and T2 image sequences with minimal late gadolinium enhancement. Eva, thank you so much for walking us through these images and for the audience, definitely take a look. These are very impressive, I would say scary images to look at. This gentleman who's lived over 70 years without a really significant past medical history, I just can't imagine in this moment how devastating this whole admission must have been. A few weeks earlier, he was fine, and now he's short of breath, having weight loss. And before you know it, he's got a life-threatening problem, has a needle in his chest to drain a bunch of fluid that turns out to be bloody in a cardiac MRI that shows this mass encasing the right side of the heart. Of course, it's very interesting medically, but just wanted to take a moment to think about what must be going on in his mind and his family's mind. And of course, right now, in the moment, we're waiting for the cardiac MRI formal read, as well as potentially the pericardial fluid cytology. At this point, what was going on in the team's mind and what were the next steps to manage him and also get to the bottom? of things. Right. So, as I said, we were lucky in our practice that we have excellent cardiac imagers. So, we already kind of had an idea that this was going to be a malignant ideology just by the way that the mass was behaving in the RV. We absolutely were thinking about cardiac masses. We were thinking about, is this a primary cardiac tumor versus is this some metastasis that we're seeing from somewhere else that we haven't really identified at the source? And already, I believe, had talked to the oncology team to evaluate the patient just by the cardiac imaging findings. But as you said, we're still waiting for that pathology, which would be uh, definite for having further treatments. When you think about cardiac masses, a broad differential diagnosis that we all should have in mind, benign versus malignant, and you can imagine those are two very different things and we manage them very, very differently. And just based on that alone, you have to look for the hemodynamics changes that it can cause, because even a benign mass can cause arrhythmias or it can cause other symptoms that the patient can present and that's going to determine your treatment. I want to invite back JP and Kevin to talk a little bit more about the differential diagnosis of cardiac masses and walk us over on how we need to think about them. Thank you, Eva. And I agree, it's a dramatic presentation. You really empathize with the patient and he was fine over last week or so. And then all of a sudden he has a draining place with a bloody drainage. So you really, really want to help this patient the best way you can in the fastest way possible. So for this, what was concerning to us was this mass seen in the MRI with a bloody effusion. So we wanted really to investigate a little bit further and know a little bit more about what's going on with the patient. So when you have a cardiac mass, really you're dealing with a lot of different things. So it could be actually indeed a tumor. 
We have an intracardiac mass per se. It can be vegetation, a thrombus, or some structural problem. For example, lipomatous hypertrophy of the intraatrial septum sometimes can be significant enough that can be manifested or interpreted as a mass, just to say a few examples here. But when you have a tumor, really the prevalence for cardiac tumors, chances are that approximately 150% times more commonly seen is a metastatic disease. So metastatic tumors are by far more prevalent when you're dealing with cardiac tumors. And then our role in our mind was, well, if this is a metastatic disease, really our role is to identify where the source of the primary malignancy is. And for this, you really need to investigate a little further with CT chest pelvis because these common sources are lungs, the breast, the esophagus, or adjacent tissues. In this particular case, as you can see in the MRI images, the tumor was irrespecting boundaries, really, was pretty invading the RV-free wall, going maybe a little bit up to the RA, and it was presenting in a very dramatic case. So we were thinking about a malignant process going on. But when you cannot find a primary source of a tumor, you're dealing with a primary tumor of the heart. And when you're dealing with a primary tumor of the heart, approximately 90% of the time, it is benign. And in the patient population, when we think about primary cardiac tumors that are benign in nature, myxomas are by far the most commonly seen. And we're going to talk a little bit about the tropism or the location of the tumors in a few moments, but myxomas are by far the most commonly seen. Lipomas, if they have predilection, so to speak, to the valves, you are talking about papillary fibrillastomas or other benign tumors such as hemangiomas. But when you're not dealing with a benign tumor, Approximately 6 to 10% of the time turns out to be malignant. And this particular tumor was very malignant looking. We couldn't find any primary source of the potential metastatic disease affecting the heart. So we thought probably we're dealing with a primary cardiac neoplasm here. And the most common tumors that you see that are primary and malignant are sarcomas, mesotheliomas, and in less than 1%, you see lymphomas. And it's really important to take a look at the heart and the tumor per se and see how it's behaving and where it's located. That's going to be key for you to identify what cardiac tumor you're dealing with. So for this talk, I want to invite back my co-fellow Kevin Lee to talk about the location of the tumors and see what we're thinking at the time. Thanks, JP, for setting that up so nicely for me, giving me a nice softball there. So as the old real estate adage goes, location, location, location is the most important thing for trying to figure out which of these neoplasms you're dealing with. So first to talk about benign cardiac neoplasms, as JP mentioned, the most common being myxoma. And certainly we classically think of myxomas being left atrial, but myxomas can also be right atrial. So if you see either a left or right atrial mass and you believe it to be a primary cardiac tumor, a myxoma would be the first thing that you would think about. In terms of the next most common benign cardiac tumor, lipomas can honestly happen anywhere in the heart. They can happen in any of the chambers of the heart and even in the pericardium itself. Papillary fibromas, as JP was talking about, mostly happen on the heart valves. So that's where I would look for them. And then rhabdomyomas are generally in the left or right ventricles. So if you see a mass in a certain chamber of the heart and you believe it to be a benign cardiac tumor, knowing which location that the tumor is located can really narrow down your differential. 
Of course, there are non-neoplastic things that can show up as masses in the heart and certainly thrown by vegetations. Things like that can happen anywhere, but especially on the heart valves. Now, a little bit more pertinent to our patient in terms of primary cardiac malignant tumors, the most common is an angiosarcoma. And the angiosarcoma is usually an atrial mass that appears on the AV groove and has pericardial extension and effusion. The next most common being rhabdomyosarcoma has no chamber preference and can happen really anywhere in the heart. And then there are also some other malignancies that tend to be in certain chambers of the heart. The lymphoma tends to be on either a right atrial mass or a right ventricular mass and is one of the only masses that occur on the right side of the heart and often has pericardial involvement and often has pericardial effusion. Osteosarcomas are generally left atrial masses and are often calcified, making them easier to identify as they will appear differently on CT scanning or an echocardiography. Fibrosarcomas are also, generally speaking, left atrial masses, as are lyomyosarcomas. And so, generally speaking, most malignant tumors will be on the left side of the heart, with the exception of lymphomas, which tend to be on the right side of the heart. Now that we've gotten a discussion about the location, perhaps Eva can talk us through a little bit about the role of advanced cardiac imaging to try to figure out where these tumors are as well as what tumors they are without the need for biopsy. Thanks, Kevin and GP. That was an excellent discussion. And as I mentioned before, cardiac imaging, it's especially important in reaching an accurate diagnosis for a patient with a primary cardiac tumor. Your probably best and first line of imaging is always your echocardiogram. And even for this patient, it was the echocardiogram that raised the suspicion and started the whole process for the patient. It can absolutely tell you about the location of the mass. It can give you information about any hemodynamic changes that can occur by the mass or also the location itself. It can predict complications if the patient has a heart block or if the patient has some form of an arrhythmia or in this case, for example, those EKG changes because of the mass that was encapsulating the RCA. The next best line when it comes to imaging is, of course, your cardiac MRI, which can assess the morphology, dimensions, and location of the mask and the extension, homogeneity, infiltration. It can give you very accurate and very detailed imaging when it comes to the mass location and characterization. There is absolutely a role for CT, and the CT was performed for our patient. It's also important to understand if there is any infiltration from the mass or any metastasis to any extended structures or any calcifications that are involved. And there is, of course, a role for a PET scan, which can help differentiate between benign and malignant tumors, can help with staging of malignancies. It can also be used for further management to monitor therapy response or to plan for radiotherapy. I want to go back to our MRI because, as I mentioned, we actually had an idea what the diagnosis would be prior to getting those pathology results back just by the MRI findings. And MRI is actually a very powerful tool to use when you have a patient with a cardiac mass. For example, if you have a benign mass like a myxoma, it tends to appear iso-intense in T1-weighted images it tends to have high uptake in T2-weighted images and has a heterogeneous LGE uptake. So you kind of have already an idea about the differential diagnosis of the masses by the way that the mass is behaving on the MRI. 
For malignant masses, which I'm going to focus on since that's our main concern here, for example, an angiosarcoma appears heterogeneous in both T1 and T2 weighted images and has a heterogeneous uptake in the LGE imaging. A rhabdomyosarcoma appears iso-intense in T1 imaging but hyper-intense in T2 imaging and it's homogeneous LGE uptake. For a lymphoma, for example, it appears iso-intense in both T1 and T2-weighted images, and it has minimal or no LGE uptake. And metastasis appear low in T1-weighted images, high in T2-weighted images, and then have a heterogeneous LGE uptake. And if you remember, our patient had a mass that was in the RARV. Just by location, we have a good differential diagnosis of what this might be. And it appeared iso-intense in T1 and T2-weighted images with minimal LGE uptake. So our suspicion in this case is that he had a primary cardiac lymphoma. The fluid analysis and the pathology analysis demonstrated that our patient had a high-grade B-cell lymphoma with germinal center-like phenotype, and Epstein-Barr virus involvement was demonstrated as well. The final diagnosis for this patient is a primary cardiac lymphoma. This is extremely, extremely rare and unexpected in many ways because, at least personally, I've never seen anything like this. So this was a first for me. Definitely a really interesting case. JP and Kevin, what are your thoughts about this diagnosis? Yeah, Eva, I agree. This was very dramatic for the patient and being able to help him in a very timely manner was very rewarding for multiple teams really involved. The clinical cardiology team, as well as the interventional cardiology team who performed the procedure and was able to obtain the fluid for the analysis and also our advanced cardiac imagers who really before the pathology came back were able to diagnose the patient with a primary cardiac lymphoma. That was a great collaboration with all the teams involved and was really rewarding for the patient and for us to treat the patient in a timely manner. So it was a very, very rewarding experience in my young career as a first-year cardiology fellow. And I agree, I've never seen such a diagnosis before. So I think it was very, very rare. But also, despite the fact of being rare, we were able to get down to the bottom of this and help the patient. I actually came in at kind of the end of this gentleman's clinical course, and certainly it was very surprising for him. He came in saying, oh, I'm a little short of breath. I haven't been eating very well. And then suddenly we're telling him he has this extremely rare cancer of his heart, kind of a 180 in terms of what he was expecting and what actually happened. This case is even rarer in that this tumor is mostly in immunocompromised patients. So actually, we ended up searching for HIV and other immunocompromising conditions, and he was completely immunocompetent. So really an interesting case overall, and really glad that we had such a great cardiology team, as well as a great hospitalist team and a great hemonc team that could really help this patient as much as possible. And Eva, if you could just let us know what happened to him in the hospital and out of the hospital. Thank you, Kevin and GP. Absolutely a very dramatic case. And I want to reemphasize what you guys already said. This is absolutely teamwork from the general cardiology team, the cardiac imaging, and the hospitalist and the oncology team to provide and deliver care for this patient in a very, very fast manner. So for the primary cardiac lymphoma, usually it's a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma 
The most common subtype is Burkitt, low-grade B-cell lymphoma or T-cell lymphoma. As already mentioned, it's extremely rare and most patients are immunosuppressed. But our patient was not. He was immunocompetent. It usually presents and involves the right side of the heart at our patient's presentation. The treatment was an anthracycline and rituximab, and he also received vincristin, cytoxin, and doxorubicin, the ARCHOP, which he tolerated well, and this was followed by our oncology team. Their echo was repeated seven days post pericardiosynthesis, and it showed resolution of the effusion, and there was, of course, surveillance with the PET scan and another echocardiogram for this patient. The PET scan images, which are going to be available for you, these are PET scan images that were taken after he had been in treatment for 12 days, basically showed that there was a reduction in the right ventricular mass wall, and overall it looked much improved. And then we also have final echocardiogram images that were taken after chemotherapy, and he didn't have any pericardial effusion, and there was a resolution of the mass by echocardiogram. So this was a very, very successful result for this patient, and he had a complete improvement of his symptoms, and he had resolution of this large cardiac mass. Wow. Ah, geez, just, just absolutely wow. I think no one in their right mind would say that this patient was lucky, but I will venture to say that he was fortunate to have found himself in your care and with this just extraordinary multidisciplinary effort involving the emergency room, his cardiologists, imagers, oncologists, pathologists, presumably critical care, everyone involved over there at North Shore essentially brought him back from some really terrifying diagnoses, tamponade acutely and a primary cardiac lymphoma subacutely. So congratulations to you all. Congratulations to him and his family. Thank you so much for bringing this case to our attention and teaching us about something that I personally didn't know much about. So JP, Eva, Kevin, thank you, thank you, thank you for presenting this really incredible case. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. It's been a pleasure getting nerdy with you guys, and it's been nothing but a pleasure. Yeah, thank you guys so much for the invite. It's great to be here. And just to end on a positive note, he just followed up recently with one of our cardiologists and has been doing great. And as far as we can tell, in remission. Just amazing. And now I would like to invite our expert, Dr. Bersani is an excellent, excellent cardiac imager who is essential to making the right diagnosis for this case. He's also our beloved program director. Personally, he's been a mentor clinically, a research mentor, and absolutely somebody that I look up to and always can know that it will have support. And part of the reason why I wanted to do cardiac imaging is Dr. Bersani. Thank you, Dr. Prasani, for joining us and giving us your insight in this case. Thank you to the Cardio Nerds team for including our case presentation. And I want to commend our local team here at North Shore who cared for this patient from diagnosis to treatment of this potentially life-threatening complication of pericardial tamponade and having a high index of suspicion for malignancy that led to appropriate imaging to diagnose and treat primary cardiac lymphoma. It's really remarkable that despite the relatively poor prognosis of this condition, the patient is in remission over a year after the initial presentation. This was a really magnificent presentation with a lot of teaching pearls. Honestly, I'm not sure I can add so much to the very high level of discussion so far, but I'll try to emphasize a few points that I think are of particular importance. First and foremost, the diagnosis here, as previously mentioned, is incredibly rare. 
Even as a cardiologist that spends most of my time reviewing all cardiac imaging modalities, in particular cardiac MRI, where I should say that all the interesting cases ultimately make their way, we don't see primary cardiac tumors all that often. Often these types of cardiac tumor cases can benefit from the collective experience that we have as cardiologists and cardiac imagers. And it's not infrequent that I review the literature and reach out to other colleagues to help with obtaining a consensus on the diagnostic differential. In this day and age with social media and technology, this has become a lot easier to do. As JP pointed out, metastatic tumors are much, much more common than primary cardiac tumors. And cardiac involvement in those cases is usually a late stage of presentation and the disease process. Now, when we talk about primary tumors, we classify them as benign and malignant. But note that benign isn't always benign. For example, while myxomas and primary papillary fibroblastomas are considered benign primary cardiac tumors, both carry with them potential for embolic complications and mass effect complications that can vary depending upon where they are located. When we talk about malignant tumors, which represent less than 10% of primary cardiac tumors, these are tumors that do not respect anatomic borders, are invasive, and have potential complications, which can depend on where the tumor is and its mobility, and these could include arrhythmic complications, heart failure due to myocardial invasion, and impact on myocardial function, and of course, as in this case, pericardial effusion and pericardial tamponade. I want to emphasize the multimodality approach to diagnosis here. In this case, after some basic diagnostic testing, including a chest x-ray and EKG, there was a chest CT done for PE evaluation, which incidentally identified the pericardial effusion and a follow-up echocardiogram, which led to urgent pericardiocentesis given impending tamponade. These offered clues to the underlying etiology of the effusion. And given the high index of suspicion for malignancy, given the patient's age and weight loss, the team rightly evaluated this further with more definitive imaging, namely with cardiac MRI. But before we jump to cardiac MRI, which I do want to say a few words about, and which is usually the next imaging modality to characterize cardiac tumors after echo, I want to say a few words about CT, and specifically EKG-gated cardiovascular CT imaging. Cardiac CT can give us exquisite pictures of the anatomy with very high spatial resolution, and some limited tissue characterization can be accomplished with CT. For example, calcific components will have very high density, and fat will have very low density. Furthermore, with EKG-gated cardiac CT, we can appreciate the motion of masses, albeit with a temporal resolution that is not as good as MRI or echocardiography. The other advantage of cardiac CT can be that it offers coronary assessment at the same time, particularly if you find a tumor that requires careful debulking or other surgical intervention. However, of course, CT imaging does entail some limited radiation exposure and contrast often is necessary, so it may not be appropriate in patients with significant renal insufficiency. Now onto MRI, which aside from looking at morphology, dimensions, location, extension, it's really the ultimate tool we have for non-invasive tissue characterization. We heard some buzzwords for EVA, including T1, T2, late enhancement. I want to expound a little bit upon what was said for the listeners here. These are all MRI sequences that can help us to characterize tissue and tell us about tumor vascularity, for example, with perfusion imaging, and assess for areas of necrosis, calcifications, fat, and fluid content. So for example, tumors that are highly vascular will be bright on perfusion imaging and late enhancement, 
And tumors that have high water content will be bright on T2-weighted imaging. Tumors that contain fat will be identified by suppressing their signal on dedicated fat suppression sequences. In this way, we can get very close to a diagnosis. In this patient's case, lymphomas typically are T2 hyperintense due to the diffuse edema they display and display heterogeneous contrast enhancement. So in the end, the structured multimodality approach can get us really close to a diagnosis. Now, let me say a few words about treatment. The treatment regimen for this patient with large B-cell lymphoma included RCHOP, which is rituxan, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, vincristine, and prednisone. Most notably, this regimen does include an anthracycline, that's doxorubicin, which as we know is a cardiotoxic agent. So it's a bit of a double whammy for this patient, as this patient will not only need to be monitored for treatment response and surveillance for recurrence down the road, but also need to be monitored for cardiotoxicity from chemotherapy. Given that his EF was borderline and that there was blood pressure room, the patient had been started on cardioprotective agents, including an ACE inhibitor and beta blocker, which can potentially reduce the risk for cardiotoxicity from chemotherapy. Sadly, though, even with chemotherapy treatment, prognosis is generally felt to be quite poor with these tumors. It's really amazing that this patient is doing okay now after a year of treatment with surveillance imaging showing no disease recurrence. I'll stop there, and I again want to commend the local team for such a great coordinated care of this patient, and also want to thank the Cardio Nerds team, Eva, JP, and Kevin for such an excellent presentation and discussion. Beep. Beep.